Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Evan. If I don't know you, um, I'm a pastor down here. So before we hop into the teaching, I kind of want to take a little bit of time and let you know some of the uh, things that we have going on down here. Because the purpose of church is not to simply come and be a part of a service once a week where you show up, listen, sing, walk away. It's a community that's focused on God, that's been redeemed by Jesus, that is here to bring his goodness into the world. That is church biblically defined. And so what we are trying to do is give you and me opportunities to get involved with the world outside of these walls. You know, tonight is date night, and that's why a lot of us are probably here. After the service, our kids will be watched while we go out for some fun. Whether you're, you're a single parent or collectively, it's a chance to get a break. We do this every month, the second Saturday. So if you know anybody that has kids that won't really come to church, this is a great way to give them some more incentive to come and spend an hour listening to truth and then getting the freedom of life without kids. You know, in your bulletin, you'll see some more upcoming, upcoming happenings, as it's labeled. Next week, there's a ladies' mini retreat. It's only like three or four hours, but retreat is such an essential component in our lives that we very rarely embrace in this culture. Pulling away to focus on what is true, laying things aside even for three or four hours can distill your soul and give you that rejuvenation you need. You know, we also have volunteer opportunities. Uh, this Monday, we are doing some stuff with Love, Inc. And we go to their warehouse, we grab furniture and bring it to people that need furniture. It's as simple as that. It's from three to five. It's an opportunity to get into people's spaces that are in need and just spend time with them, giving them the essentials that we so often take for granted. So if any of those are appealing to you, come talk to me, talk to one of us, uh, we can get involved. All right, so before I start talking, just take a little time to still your mind with me in prayer so we can focus on the reason why we're here. God, you are good. You are the creator of everything you gave us today, and that is why we are here, because we seek you. We desire more of the truth that you have for our lives. Without you, we have nothing, so I pray, I ask that you would pour goodness into our lives right here, right now, what we need. In your name, amen. All right, so I used to be a teacher of middle school, a little bit of high school, and during my time as a teacher, I was taught that science proves that adolescence can only maintain attention for about 10 minutes. So you're supposed to be like 10 minutes on of teaching, two minutes of distraction, 10 minutes on, two minutes off. They also showed that auditory learning, just listening, you retain 5% of that information. We are growing up middle schoolers, ladies and gentlemen. We are in the same exact category. You're gonna remember maybe one or two things that I say tonight. So I encourage you to grab on to whatever sticks out in your mind as I say it or as the Spirit brings it to you and zone me out and focus in on that. Right? Think about the hundreds of sermons some of you have heard and how many you remember. However, the Spirit of God wants to give you something tonight. And so when you feel that, focus in on that, write that down, do whatever you need to do to hang on to that truth. All right. My turn. So in this series that we've been looking at, um, we 
see how a person should respond to the circumstances that they go through and the way that their responses influence their life for the better. You know, we looked at responding to hatred from others, lack of satisfaction, disappointment, and last week we looked at guilt. Basically, we've looked at how you handle all of the crummy things that life can throw at you. Now, I know hardships are very much a reality, but life is so full of good. There is so much beauty in this world. In the big things, think about the people that you love and those that love you. The experiences that you have that satisfy, that put that smile on your face, that you just feel like life is good for that moment. The things that give you passion, that drive you to want to live. Or the small things, the fact that you have a roof over your head, food on the table, a bed to sleep in, warm days, things that make you laugh, right? These are the things that make us smile, that bring us contentment and joy, and the things that make us love our lives. But in the same way that our reactions to the negative influence our life, how we respond to the good has major impacts as well. And so what I want to do tonight is to explore the various responses we have to the good things in our lives and how these responses impact our view of reality. You know, I'm going to look at two that are fully, in my opinion, ingrained into our culture. The first one is, the good I have is because of fill in the blank. Money, my house, my possessions, this person that I'm in a relationship with. We live in a consumer culture where we are constantly bombarded with the belief that more will make our lives better. More money, more possessions, more beauty, and more beautiful people will satisfy. Capitalism, in my opinion, isn't the only reason why this is developed into one of the foundations of our culture. At the core of who we are, all of humanity, we have the inclination to believe that more money, more stuff, more muscle mass, more business, more time for leisure, more beer, more fun will make our life good. So when our life is good, we often react by saying life is good because I have fill in the blank. But by responding as if the good comes from what we have, when things go bad, we then seek out more of that thing that once brought us happiness. By doing this, we reinforce our belief that good comes from more. So when we feel unsatisfied or unhappy, we instantly turn to things. And it's a downward spiral. The second response we have to good is even more deeply ingrained into our culture and into human nature. The good I have is because of me. Not me, but you talking about yourself. You, me, right? Our country and our culture are built on the notion that you become whatever you want to be. That if you work hard enough, keep trying regardless of how many times you fail, you will be able to make your life good. You know, and personally, we tend to believe the same thing. That I can make my life good if I work harder. If I work out more, if I study harder, then I will have the life that I've always wanted. We believe that we are the sole providers of the good in our lives. And that that good originates from us and the choices that we make. Now, I firmly believe in the importance of working hard to create the life that you want. 
And I believe that the choices we make have com- complete and tie- they're, they're completely tied to the way our life becomes. However, when we believe that the good in our life is fully dependent upon us, we ourselves gain the glory. Then when things don't go like we want, we look to ourselves to fix it, to bring it back to good. The further we walk down the road of self-dependence, the more we become enchained to our own abilities and our own powers to bring what we think is good to our lives. By thinking that the good I have is because of me, we promote ourselves to God of our own world, which this will only lead to heartache. So those are two of our culturally reinforced reactions to the good that we have, and we all have so much good. But there is a third. You know, David, from the Bible, the most powerful king of the nation of Israel, shows us a different approach to handling the good in our lives. The good I have is because of God. Man, David had a lot of good in his life. You read through First and Second Samuel, a little bit in First Kings, you basically see his biography. And this guy was the ruler of a large nation, He had endless wealth and possessions. He had an oppressive list of accomplishments. We know about Goliath. Think about being the one that took down a man like that, how that would make you feel. He had battle after battle of hand-to-hand combat that he won, enemies defeated, and a large nation established and secured due to what he did. David had a lifetime worth of good that he could have tried to take credit for, but instead he lived out of the belief system that the good he had was because of God. Let me give you a couple examples. So in 1 Chronicles 28, this is basically the end of David's reign. He's given a farewell speech and he's handing off his kingdom to his son. So think about like what a farewell speech would look like when you're leaving the center stage. It's your chance to kind of give your last uh, just to leave your, your uh, impression that you and what you did were, were worthwhile. But this is how David goes about it. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader and in the house of Judah my father's house. And among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to be king over all Israel. Instead of saying that he fought his way to be king, that he battled off and he was the best one amongst them all, what's he say? How does he become king? Over and over he says, God chose me. God had pleasure in making me. He gives credit entirely to God for his position. We'll read a little bit more in his farewell. In First Chronicles 29, 3, and f- 3 through 5, he's going to give a, a little donation. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, that's God's temple that his son's going to build, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls, on and on. Any idea how much 3,000 talents of gold equates to in our economy? There's some accountants in here. Any idea, Ben? $4.7 trillion. $4.7 trillion from his own personal account. This is as he's walking away from his position as king. 
So you're thinking, well, he's probably doing that in order to impress these people. But we get more of an insight to his motivation. Let's look at First Chronicles 29, 16. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for, the building, for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Instead of keeping the money that he had won in battle, he freely gives it back to God and states that the money was God's all along. He does not use his generosity to bring about his glory, but, his, but is generous out of his belief that the money was always God's. Man, this is the verse you want to focus in on if you want to see what God wants you to do with your money. From the stories we have about David recording in the Bible, he seems to live out of this understanding that God is the source of all the good in his life. It was not just something he spouted out when, some, when important people were listening during his farewell. There is example after example of him operating out of the belief that God is his provider, that God is his rescuer, that God is the determining factor for the good in his life. Now you got to remember, David was a man, a human, just like all of us. Different culture, different time, but still the same thing that we are. And it's not natural or easy for humans to continually declare that God is the reason why their life is good. We seem to gravitate more easily towards giving credit to the things we enjoy or taking credit ourselves. Now, how did David hang on to this approach? In the midst of so much good, how did he continue to give the credit to God and not take it himself? You know, Psalms 8 gives us some insight. Psalms are a lot like poetry or songs where we get insights into the deeper thoughts and emotions of the artist. They are written to reveal the deeper struggles, triumphs, and motivations that people have. Psalms 8, we see David's deeper belief of why he has what he has. And so let's just go ahead and start at the very beginning. We'll read it all first, and then we'll pick it apart. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we're going to spend a little bit of time just breaking this apart in order to get some insight into how David was able to hang on to the approach that God is the source of all his good. You know, they said 5% for auditory, 15% when you have visual, when you're reading, right? Auditory plus visual is like 40%. So I'm upping the standard of what you need to comprehend here, people. <laughs> I know you've been zoning out and you heard like two minutes of the last 15, but now you got to hear at least seven of the next 15, okay? All right, so let's go to verse one, just the first part of it. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Obviously, O oh Lord, our Lord, we, uh, to us, those are the same words, but 
The first Lord is Yahweh. That's God's name. It's what he gave to Moses from the burning bush to declare to the people of Israel. This is who I am, Yahweh. The second Lord is master. David begins by declaring that Yahweh is his master, that he is the one that has control or authority over him. He then proclaims how majestic, which is also large, mighty, beautiful, or magnificent his name is. Name is a way to refer to someone's fame or their reputation, who they are. It is as if David is declaring that God's sovereignty is due to what he has heard from others about God and what he can see in the earth that shows God's power and his majesty. He then begins to examine how much more majestic God is than humanity. Let's go to the next one. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So God's glory or renown, honor, magnificence, or great beauty is higher than the highest thing that David could even comprehend, the heavens. Right? Think about a cloudless night when you look up at the stars. And David said, you are bigger than that. In verse 2, he professes that all of the great battles that he had won and the giants that he had defeated were solely because God used him, even though he was weak, insignificant, helpless. That idea of babe or infant is like a child nursing on their mother. That's how weak and helpless he was. But God decided to use him. He then dives even deeper into God's greatness and man's trivialness. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? As David observes and ponders the expanse and the beauty of the universe, the things in nature that seem eternal and unchanging, whose size and grandeur make humanity seem invisible and worthless, he wonders how the creator, the master of the cosmos, the one who made them out of nothing and firmly secured them, could care to take notice of and continue to remember humanity. He openly acknowledges his insignificance and unimportance in comparison to the bigger scale of life. He is a dot on a mile line long, mile long line, or a drop of water in an ocean. But he also understands that man is far more than this, that the master of all has given mankind an illogical amount of, um, illogical amount of significance. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You know, even though we are specks in the universe, God has made us a little lower than the angels. He has bestowed upon us glory. That's also defined as abundance, wealth, power, and honor or splendor and majesty, beauty. That he has given us dominion, which also means rule or reign over everything in nature. With a little consideration, he recognizes that we have a great amount of importance in the universe, that we are rulers of creation that we have the ability to do far more than anything else. 
But it's crucial to understand David's view of where our significance come from, comes from. He states three times, you have given, you have made, you have put. David acknowledges that every ounce of glory and honor and dominion has been given to us. That the reason that humanity is as great as it is is because God put us here. This is an incredible thing for a man like David to say. He is a king of a nation, a man with an unthinkable wealth, a warrior against who no army could stand. But instead of clinging to his power and prosperity as a badge of what he had accomplished, he humbly declares that it all comes from God. You know, David then ends his psalm in the same way he began it. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. David states that he is not in charge of his own life, but that Yahweh, the God that created everything, is the one who has control over him. Through the Psalms, we see that David operates out of the foundation that God has total authority over his life, over the decisions that he makes, over the way that his life plays out. And we see that David does not simply submit out of blind loyalty because his dad did, right? because people around him do it. He has taken time to listen to other people's stories, to read about what God has done in other people's lives. He has also taken time to examine the world around him and contemplate the implications of the size, magnitude, and beauty of the universe. Through this, he understands that his master is far bigger and greater than what he has experienced or the ways that he has defined God. He understands that all he has been given or all he has accomplished is a gift given to him by the almighty maker of heaven and earth. You know, I believe this is why David was able to keep his mind, emotions, and pride in check when he was surrounded by so much good. He took time to remember God's place in the universe in comparison to his own. Let's move into some application, although there's so much application in there. Please go back and read Psalms 8 tonight. If we want to stay anchored when we are in a trial of prosperity, that's a term that Steve Balsley, the former pastor here at Rimrock, used to use, the trial of prosperity then we must approach it in the same way, by considering our place in the world in comparison to the one who made everything. We must spend time contemplating how little we are and how big God is. There are endless ways to do this, depending on who you are and the way that you are wired. But one way that I want to present to you tonight is to consider the good things in your life and to trace them back to their source. Let me give you some examples. So pick a possession that you really like, something that makes you happy, whether it's a car or a house, or it could be a hobby, right? It could be a gun. It could be anything that you just take a lot of joy in. How did you get that? Money. How did you get the money? Your job. Why did your job give you that money? Because of the time that you invested, right? It all comes back to you. But you got to keep going. What did you do? to get the days that you invested into making the money? What did you do to cause the sun to rise? What did you do to guarantee that you would have breath in your lungs and a functioning mind the moment that you woke up? 
I'll give you another example. Your amazing job, what provides your family with what they need. How did you get that job? Hard work and talent, most likely. Could be a little luck in there, some favor. Long hours spent studying or working gave you that talent that allowed you to get that job. But where did you get your ability to learn from? Where did you get those talents or those natural abilities that have just always been a part of who you are? Where did you get a brain and a body that are capable of doing so much? Where did you get, what did you do to be born with a DNA that made you who you are? Do one more, more big picture. So the life that you have. Right now, in this moment, you have to trace back every year that you have ever lived. And as you think back through those years, think about the moments that you should have died, but you didn't. We've all had them. Or the moments when the unexplainable happened and your life changed for the better because of it. Think about the person or book or song or the smallest trivial thing was brought into your life and because of that, your life took a drastic change to the better. You are who you are now because your life was saved and changed by something far bigger than you. You are who you are now because of the pieces that were put in place by the hand of this massive designer. When we continue to trace the origin of the good things in our lives, we will see that it has nothing to do with us. Everything good originates from someone far greater. The good things that we have are ultimately given to us by the one who causes the sun to rise the one that gives the gift of life each morning that we wake up. One of my favorite poets said, a day is almost as if a gift or a present has been placed upon your forehead the moment before you open your eyes. The one that knits you together with your talents and abilities that are specifically for you did it for a reason. The God of the Bible is the provider of life. Apart from him, we have nothing. When things are good and we take time to consider where this goodness came from, it can do at least two things to help us out. First one, it helps us maintain a proper perspective on the good. Instead of getting lured into the tendencies of our culture and human nature, we remember that things are not what bring us joy, that we are not the primary source of good in our lives. By remembering this, contentment will continue. Instead of going through the highs and the lows, we can just stay content. The second thing, that contemplating where your good came from while things are good, the second thing it can do to help you is when things get hard, it, it more quickly brings our eyes back to the author of life who is the unchangeable foundation from which good comes. Let me give you an example of this. Almost two years ago, I suffered a traumatic brain injury. Because of that, I often battle with mental fatigue. Sometimes every day in a week, sometimes like three or four. And it makes it much harder for me to live life in the way that I want to live life, at the level that I prefer. 
you know, the past few days, my mind has been worn out, which is extremely discouraging. You know, there are many things that I feel like God has called me to do, like pastor this church is one of them. And when my brain is not working the way that I want to, it makes it much harder to do what I feel like I'm supposed to do. But because I know the source of all that is good is not me, my mind and my emotions quickly return their focus on God. I happened to be swimming last night at the Y when God brought my attention back to him. Up, down, up, down. Evan, you are not the source of your good. Evan, your brain and how it operates is not what brings good into your life. Remember what I have done for you. Remember how I saved your life two years ago instead of bringing you home? Remember the way that I have helped your brain heal and brought you to where you're at now? Remember the way that I removed addiction from you back when you were 27 and you were helpless? Remember all of the good things that you have in your life, not because of anything that you have done. Because of that, because of that thought process, I got peace. And I was brought to a spot of hope. You know, when we take that time to reflect upon the good that we have and why we have it, the hardships just kind of fade away. You know, far too often we stand on the shaky foundations that we create by thinking that the things we own or the things we do bring us ultimate good. Or even worse, that the good in our lives is slowly dependent upon us. Before long, those foundations that we built crumble and we are left discouraged and disillusioned. But if we remain fixed on the source of all that is good, when hardships come, we stand firm in the midst of chaos. You know, Paul put it this way in Philippians 4. And I know most of you have heard this before. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You got to see what Paul is saying to truly understand this verse. I have learned. I have learned. It's not something that was just given to him and he's instantly able to be content no matter what, but he has learned. And what has he learned? Look at that last sentence. That through God, through his provider of all that is good, because he stays focused on him instead of his circumstances, that he has the strength to be content no matter what. We've been taking uh, communion the last five weeks, and this is going to be the last week we do it for a little while. Um, and communion is symbolic of Jesus' body. Right, His body was broken, that's the bread, and his blood was poured out, and that's the juice. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a member of this church or where you come from. If you believe that, man, come up and enjoy just kind of that style 
of interaction with God. But as you do it tonight, I encourage you to just think about the good that you have in your life. Think about the fact that your soul has been saved and where that came from, where your eternal security and reconciliation with your creator came from. And from that, though, think about all of the other good things that you have in your life, the people you love, the contentment and purpose that you have in your life, and just meditate on where that comes from. You know, the musicians are going to come up and and do it first. After they're done, please, if this is what you want to do, just come up and spend that time with God.